Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hey, Ben. It's Jerry. Hey, Jerry. It's Ben. Hey, Ben. How long have you been following NASCAR? A lifetime. Me too. And how fitting, then, that we're the hosts of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR highlights NASCAR's illustrious history with analysis and anecdotes from a couple of NASCAR historians, namely Ben White, the gentleman on the other side of this microphone, as well as myself, Jerry Bunkowski. We're going to discuss with you some contemporary NASCAR topics and everything we've heard throughout the years. You'll learn about where the sport has been, where it is, and where it's going to go, and the inside scoop on some of the greatest, craziest stories you'll ever hear. Welcome back to this week's edition of A Lifetime in NASCAR. I'm Jerry Bunkowski, along with my good buddy Ben White. And this is episode number 35. Man, the time has certainly flown. And Ben, you've got a stellar lineup of stories for today. Some of the history things we've been talking about. Uh, really want to talk to you a lot about that. Looking forward to talking, hearing some of your stories. We were talking off the air about some of this. Some is really, really interesting. But let's wrap up real quick. Um, you know, we're, we're coming off the, uh, the race at Texas Motor Speedway. Kyle Larson keeps winning. Eight, win number eight. I mean, at this point, you know, He's got to be the the favorite for this whole thing. I mean, he he's now the only or the first driver to clinch his spot in at the Phoenix Championship race in three weeks. I mean, can this guy be beaten in your opinion? I just don't know, and I, I I'll be honest with you. Every time he straps into a Hendrick Motorsports Chevrolet, that number five car is just as strong as it possibly can be. And I think if you really pinned him down in the corner and said, Kyle. Can you just tell us what is the key to everything going in the right direction? I'm not sure if he could even answer the question himself. He's just having one of those incredibly good years. You know, we touched on it last week, you know, Sterling Marlin, when he won the, the two back-to-back Daytona 500s, 94 and 95, he he went to the, to the through the same uh, gate. He went to the same donut shop. He wore the same underwear, wore the same shoes, wore the same driver's suit, and, uh, talked to the same people. Walk back for backwards through the same doorways, everything I could think of, and and I don't know if Kyle's taking it to that extreme, but I'm telling you what, he just is having a phenomenal season, and we've seen drivers in the past that have won a lot of races that didn't win a championship. So I, you know, if he's got a, a rabbit's foot in one pocket and and a pair of dice in the other, I don't know what he's doing, <laughs> but he's got to be super careful because he's got uh, just a few more races to go and crossing his fingers behind his back, whatever. I don't, we talked about this too. I don't think these drivers of today are as, as superstitious as the ones in the past, but he's just really being careful and making sure that all of those nuts and bolts on that number five car are uh, taken care of and making sure that his, his crew is just doing everything they can, no mistakes on pit road and making sure all those nuts are tight, making sure he doesn't speed on pit road and just doing the right things. But he's got just a few more races to go, and maybe he'll have that championship in his back pocket. Exactly. You know, you know. obviously this is a lifetime in NASCAR, and, you know, Texas Motor Speedway, you know, that's been a place that, you know, it's been around for about, what, 24, 25 years, I think it's been about mm-hmm. now. And, yeah. you know, it's it's known as not only – well, at one point it was actually known as the fastest track in NASCAR. I mean, it was kind of uh, going back and forth between that and Atlanta Motor Speedway, you know, as far as non-restrictor plate tracks. But – you know, you look back at that place, and it's had such a, a storied history. And, you know, when I think about Texas Motor Speedway, the, one of the biggest stories I can think of that, you know, I was there, I remember it as if it was yesterday, back in, I, I want to say it was 2005, I think it was, when Michael McDowell was um, qualifying, came off a of turn four and did a complete barrel roll, one of the worst crashes I've ever seen in my life. 
and he walks away from it. I mean, that yeah. that in and of itself was a testament to the safety that, you know, the cars have these days. Uh, but, you know, and that was only a few years after, uh, you know, the unfortunate demise and death of Dale Earnhardt Sr. at Daytona. But Texas Motor Speedway has, has such a great history in such a short period of time. Um, what do you, what's, what's kind of like your you know, your biggest memory of Texas? I mean, is, is the McDowell thing? Is it some of the bigger races we've had there? I mean, what, what, when you think of Texas Motor Speedway, what's the first thing that you think of? Well, I'll tell you, Jerry, you know, the, the one thing I think about is when we went there for the, for one of the first or second races, maybe it was the first one, we, they had some problems with the track. I think if you remember back, I think it might've been the first time the track was coming up and, and they, one of the things uh, that they came out with uh, 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 was one of the T-shirts, I think, that one, some of the track management come up with. And it, it was basically said, you know, shut up and drive. They were talking, they were giving them <laughs> to the drivers. You remember that? And, right, right, right. And uh, uh, they were, you know, because the drivers were upset about the track coming up to the point where they couldn't get the the uh get around the first turn there and then what it was was seepage water seepage coming up through the track and was tearing up the track and making a big hole every time they were going through there and and uh man i'm telling ed gossage was the president of the speedway they might not want me to bring all this up now but uh it was it was quite a controversy and uh they the t-shirts the it was more of a publicity stunt and the drivers were not laughing at all because it was getting to be a rather dangerous situation for the guys that's one of the things I remember. They did finally come up with a solution to, to do it. And then the second thing I remember was they, you know, you'd look at Charlotte Motor Speedway in Texas, and by looking at the two racetracks, you think they're identical where they weren't. They were having a problem with uh, drivers coming off the fourth turn, and it was too sharp of a turn as they came off. And if you remember back, Ricky Craven had a rather bad accident coming off a of turn four. Right. And, uh, that was, that was, he did get injured in that crash. And thankfully he recovered from it, but try to lay them down one on top of the other. It looks very, very close, or at least at the time it did. And, uh, then the, but it wasn't at all. And they had, had quite a problem. So they had to go back and work on the track and get that corrected and then of course the the michael mcdowell crash and I, that's probably the longest i've held my breath at one time praying and, and holding my breath at the same time it was a horrific crash it looked a lot worse thankfully than it was and uh, he just flipped and flipped and flipped and flipped and one of the greatest sights of all time for somebody covering the sport was to see him come out of that car and just raise right up out of it and uh, wave to the crowd and he was okay. I guess the, 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 but the ultimate crash to see someone pop out of was the 1990 crash from Michael Waltrip when, uh, you know, he crashed at Bristol Motor Speedway mm -hmm. when he hit the wall there and the car just disintegrated. And I remember of the, gosh, I don't know how many people were 80,000 or so people at that Bush series race there, which is now Xfinity. The second Michael Waltrip hit that wall, dead silence. I mean, because everybody thought he had he had perished in that crash, even his brother Michael. Everybody is like, there's no way a driver could could survive such a horrific crash. And about that time, we all looked down there, and it's like, hey, he's moving around. And then a little bit more, he's like, he's tried to tell the people how to cut the bars in the car because I remember Michael telling me, Michael Waltrip telling me, he said. He was telling the track workers, if you hit, if you cut that bar the way you're cutting that bar, that's the only injury I'm going to have. It's going to whop me in the head. <laughs> and, and fortunately, he stood right up and waved. I'm telling you, Jerry, that had it was the miracle of all miracles that Michael Waltrip walked away. And then what, uh, you know, years later, ironically, Michael McDowell was driving a car for Michael Waltrip that day. Mm -hmm. And he hit in such a way that uh, that the car rolled and rolled and rolled. And that's what really saved him. The, the, the cars that hit head on into a wall and they hit and, and, the, and come to a complete stop suddenly, that's the ones you have to worry about. The ones that roll like that, that's the best thing a driver can go through is the rolls because the, the uh, safety protection and then the roll bars are designed for that type of role and and you know richard petty had told my son aaron he my son aaron had a pretty bad 
crash in his regular passenger Camaro one day. And I remember we, we went over to Petty Enterprises one day just for an interview and he rode along with me and he and Richard propped their feet up and had a Coke and talked. Greatest conversation Richard and Aaron ha ever had. And I'm so glad he told Rich, uh, Aaron this. He said, if you ever get in trouble, ball up inside the car as tight as you can, and then you'll have a whole lot better chance of survival. And as it turned out, when Aaron ran off the road one day and hit a culvert, what happened was uh, he thought something he said, he said, Dad, I just thought of what Richard Petty told me that day. I'll be done. And, you know, and he, he just kind of barrel rolled the car. <clears throat> and so, uh, and, and that's the same thing that happened with Michael McDowell. And he said the same thing. He said, I just balled up in the car there at Texas when it happened. And, and I came out of it just fine. But great advice from the king and just the good Lord was with Michael Waltrip and Michael McDowell and my son, Aaron White. And it's just the great advice. When you get in that kind of trouble and you see your car is going to flip like that, just ball up behind the seat and say a prayer and hopefully everything's going to be okay. Exactly. You know, and, and Michael McDowell, and I say this with all due respect to Michael, but, you know, he had carried that, um, that crash you know, throughout his career. I mean, you know, um, yeah, he had some decent success, but, you know, he, there was always that question about, you know, when would be his first, when would be, you know, all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And, but almost inevitably people would just talk, go back and talk about that crash in Texas. And then he winds up winning this year's Daytona 500. I think we can finally put that crash to rest and yeah. focus in on Michael McDowell, the Daytona 500 winner, as opposed to Michael McDowell, the Texas Motor Speedway, you know, roll after roll after roll after roll crash that he had, you know, 15 years or whatever ago, so ago it was. Oh, absolutely, yeah, and and you know, uh, people meaning well in their thoughts and their kind words which continually say to him, oh, I'm so glad that was worked out for you and you didn't get hurt in Texas and all the best and all those things. But each time they would say something to him, they would remind him of it. And, you know, and of course, a race driver, they don't want to think about the bad things that happened right. to them in their career. Of course, they want to have, they want to think about the good things. And, and that is, you know, pushing the throttle and fighting for position and doing 200 miles an hour and, showing their talents and i'm sure a lot of folks met well but they just kept reminding him of it and you know it he did well to come out of the car and but i mean if, i guess you could go on the internet and you could find it and if you wanted to just see how horrific the, but it was a horrific crash and thank the good lord he came out of that thing without a scratch really he didn't you know he was he was fine coming out of it but again the cars uh, the, the the Cup cars, Xfinity cars, Truck Series, NASCAR works extremely, extremely hard to make sure that their drivers are safe. And everything that goes into these cars is for that reason. Not only the drivers to be safe, but the fans and the crews and, and even us, the guys in the media. I don't right. <laughs> you know, sometimes that's questionable, I guess, from what we write, I guess. But they do care about us. They do want to make sure we're okay. But, uh, yeah, they, they just want to make sure he was all right. And, and uh the the fact again the fact that the car rolled as much as it did looked bad but anytime a car rolls like that it's just each time it rolls and and hits the ground or whatever it takes a little more energy off the mm -hmm. car mm -hmm. and that way it comes to a stop and everything's okay but what the the ones that hit suddenly and stop suddenly that's the ones you have to be careful of well you know i remember that that uh that roll so or that wreck so bad because i was sitting in the you know infield media center of texas when it happened mm -hmm. and you know, it was one of those instances where the entire place, you could have heard a pin drop. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people, they they were so stunned, they didn't know what to say. I mean, you know, sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, my God, or is he okay? They didn't even say that. They were just like, you know, we, we didn't, we, they didn't know what to say. They were just, it was silence for maybe like 10 or 15 seconds. Then when he pops out of the car, it's like this whole gush of relief, you know, from, yeah. from everybody in the, in the media center. And, you know... The, the one thing that reporters can become cynical over the years, but this was an instance where everybody was just so glad to see him come out of there yeah. and pop out of there. But, you know, another place that has had its share of, of uh, 
maybe not as spectacular of wrecks, but it's also the pl- next place we're going to visit on the NASCAR Cup playoffs is this weekend's race at Kansas. And we're going to get into a little bit more about Kansas Speedway here in a little bit. You've got some great notes I want to talk about. But, you know, going into Kansas, Ben, you know, the the Kyle Larson machine, I, I just don't think it can be stopped, stopped. However, I will say this, and, you know, two things. One, if he does go into a mini slump, this couldn't come at a better time. If he slumps at, at both uh, Kansas and Martinsville, he's still locked into the, the race at Phoenix. But, of course, you don't want to see him get in a slump. But the other thing I wanted to bring up is that, you know, he's got several uh, teammates. Obviously, Chase Elliott is below the cutoff line right now. Do Alex Bowman and William Byron, do, and, and Kyle Larson, for that matter, do they all work together in collaboration to try to get Chase the defending series champion up in the top four. So he qualifies for a Phoenix. And you can say the same thing about Joe Gibbs racing. I mean, right now, Denny Hamlin and and, uh, Kyle Busch are only nine and eight points to the good, while Martin Truex Jr., I think is, what, 22 points below the cut line right now. So, I mean, does Christopher Bell step up to the plate and try to help out all these guys? Same thing with Team Penske. You've got Ryan Blaney, who's pretty solidly locked into second place, but Joey Logano, who's last in the in the uh, standings right now, and Brad Keselowski, who's sixth, they're not looking very good. They've got you know, essentially two races to turn things around to get themselves into the playoffs. Um, you know, th- there's a lot of what ifs. Yeah. And you know, what mm-hmm. what are your what's your thought? I mean, we've seen this over the years where a lot of teammates who are no longer in the contention, maybe they didn't make it, or maybe they they uh, were eliminated in the first or second rounds. How, how do teams kind of um, um, quantify the guys that you know can help them. I mean, can, I mean, realistically, can they really help them a lot or not? Or how, I mean, how do you kind of look at that? Well, I think the way they would look at it is this, and this is just strictly my opinion. But all right, let's say that you're three laps to go. You're in a pack of cars. You have a situation to where you've got Chase at the top of the track, and you've got Denny at the bottom. You're, are you going to say, well, what is my best line of defense? What, where am I going to go best on this racetrack? And suddenly something opens up at the top, and you got Chase. Well, obviously you're going to follow Chase, right? right. If you're going to be, if you're going to be Alex uh, or, or William, I mean, you. In all all cases, I don't think you're going to try to do anything to to advance Denny you know, or any of the Joe Gibbs cars, if you've got your teammates up there, they're teammates, right? And so, I mean, it all depends on how things are going to shake out on the racetrack. Do you, it's a tough call because do you want to, you want to get a win for yourself and you want to handle your sponsors? I'm sure you do. But at the same time, you got Chase there who really needs to get in the final four and you can't. And you're in a position going into three with two laps to go or a lap to go. I mean, you, you got to take care of your sponsors, but you are gonna, you're you're also a team player. Yes. So if I'm in, let me say it this way: I'm, if I'm in the seat and I've got my guy in front of me and I see nothing but sunshine ahead of me, <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know. It, you know, I would, I'd, I'd have to help my man, right? Yep. That's the way I see it. <laughs> I mean, I, I'd much rather have a Monday morning meeting of, you know, patting me on the back as I walk in the room versus saying, what's up with that? You know, what, what were you thinking, man? Right. Exactly. You, know, you helped Denny get in, but you didn't help me get in. So I don't know. That's, that's why I'd play it. Exactly. I, I agree with you hundred percent. All right. Now, so we're going to Kansas and yeah. You know, we're episode number 35, like we said, and we've got, Ben, you've got a lot of uh, great stats you've given me here. Let's talk talk about the, you know, since we've been doing this uh, on a regular basis every week where we kind of tie in the episode number with the car car number, you know, like, for example, this is episode 35. So we're going to talk about the car number 35 in the history of NASCAR. And you've really got some interesting points here. I mean, I, I really like this uh, about Benny Parsons, but I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave. I'm not gonna steal your thunder. It's all your you, brother. It's no, I'm not. <laughs> it's totally you, man. I mean, it, you know, I, I mean, I just thought it was interesting. You know, sometimes sometimes we go into these statistical uh, corners of the show here, and we think, 
hey, this has got to be something interesting about the number, and surely it won somewhere. Well, number 35 was one of those numbers that throughout 72, three years of NASCAR history is one of those numbers that's never gone to victory lane. And again, I was surprised. I thought surely somewhere on some beach course or some, you know, cornfield short track somewhere, it had to have won somewhere, but no, it did not. But my late friend, Benny Parsons, has probably the best uh, group of numbers with it. He finished in the top five, six times with the number 35. And he did that when he went to Hendrick Motorsports when uh, Tim Richmond was ill uh, in 1986. He took over the car for a few races in 86 and in 87, 1987. And uh, he also had nine top tens with the number 35 when he drove the Folgers coffee car. He drove that car when it was red, and he also drove the car when it had the decaffeinated colors of, of green. It was a beautiful race car, too, by right, the way, right. number 35. Right. And uh, and also, uh, Alan Kowicki, the, the late 1992 champion, also had one top five with the number 35 and four uh, top tens with the number 35. But the first time the... Uh, number 35 got on the racetrack was July 10th, 1949, and it was at the beach and road course at Daytona. And if you don't, you, you say, well, what, what is a beach and road course? Actually, before the Daytona International Speedway was built, they, uh, Bill France Sr., the founder of NASCAR, used uh, Highway A1A down in Daytona as part of the racetrack and then it circled and went part of the, the track was on the beach itself mm -hmm. and there were many Sunday afternoons they had to hurry because the tide was coming in and it was basically messing up the racetrack so they had to hurry some races were cut short because the tide was coming in on that racetrack but it was 4.1 miles in length and uh, it was just it was part of it was asphalt part of it was sand and so, uh, but yeah, on September 11th, 1949, or, or excuse me, I'm sorry, I misspoke, July 10th, 1949, Glenn Dunaway was the first driver to use number 35. And then September 11th, 1949, at Lakehorn, Pennsylvania, John Belgard was the second one to use it in 1949. So number 35 is still in the no-win column. So who knows, Some, somebody may come along and use number 35 and take it to victory lane uh, sometime in the future. Yeah, so you there know, you go. I, I've got to ask you about that. You know, we, we talked a, a, earlier about like superstitions and that. Is there a, I mean, in general terms, does a car number, does it make some potential um, team owners, drivers, what have you, get a little superstitious if it has never won a race or maybe has maybe only won one or two times in, you know, in its career, you know, and, you know, 35, the number 35 to have not ever won a cup race in 319 starts just yeah. amazes me. Yeah. If I was a team owner or a driver and I was into that kind of thing, I might not want it, <laughs> because, you know, because it's never been to victory lane before, but there have been times when, when a sponsor came on board and uh, had a car number that they wanted to use because it tied into their particular mm -hmm. sponsorship. One that comes to mind uh, in 1986, I remember the Wood Brothers had used number 21 from very early in the game. And when they had 7-Eleven convenience stores as the sponsor, they actually changed the number from 21 to seven. And they used that number for a couple of years, but with the stipulation with NASCAR, now when the sponsorship goes away, we absolutely unequivocally get the number 21 back. And they said, yes, you do. But that was part of the marketing plan from 7-Eleven to use number seven. And that ironically, uh, Rich, uh, Kyle Petty got his first victory at Richmond, Virginia in March of 1986 using the number seven. But uh, yeah, there's, so there have been times when a sponsor requested that the number be changed to fit their marketing scheme. And then it went back to uh, whatever that was, but that was monumental when the, when the Wood Brothers changed and went away from number 21, because that was, that was like etched in stone cornerstone. Uh, you, you know, that was a big number. It's almost like asking Richard Petty to step away from the number 43 for a year. Right. And that that was a big move, but they did get the twenty one back. Well, let me ask you this: you, you just kind of raised something in my mind, Ben. Yeah. The one thing that NASCAR 
has never, well, to the best of my knowledge, has never done, maybe you can tell me if I'm right or wrong on this, the, because of the finite number of race car numbers, you basically have one th or, well, zero through 99, and you can also have double zero, double uh, one through zero nine. So you essentially have uh, roughly about 100 and, what, 109, 110 different combinations there. Mm. We've never retired a number, a car number, have we? No, we haven't. No. And, and the number actually belongs to NASCAR. It doesn't belong to the team. The, uh, now, but at the same time, the 43 with Richard Petty, the number three with Richard Childress, mm -hmm. uh, the 21 with the Brood brothers. I mean, that's, it, those are pretty well etched in stone and, uh, you know, they have agreements with those race teams to not let them go anywhere else. You know, you remember the number three stayed uh, with Childress for many years until it was re resurrected with Austin Dillon. But no, uh, the number actually belongs to NASCAR. And I don't, I mean, it, it's possible that the 43 could be retired possibly if, you know, when Richard Petty passes, possibly, I don't know that it would. But they've, to my, they've never retired a number ever in NASCAR history, no. Would it be, for lack of a better word, weird to see a three-digit car number? I know we've seen them, don't get me wrong. I mean, we've seen, especially in the, in the grassroots level, we see a lot of them. But, mm -hmm. I mean, what would be the, the feeling, if you will, in the Cup Series especially, if we had a regular three-digit number for a race car? Well, it, it has been done in the past uh, to have a three-car, a three-digit number in the Cup Series, and it happened in the early to mid-60s. And, and when it happened was when the guys would go out to, say, Riverside, California, and they would have the Western guys, Winston West guys, run, uh, and they would put a, a, a third number on there. Dan Gurney would run the number 121 mm -hmm. for the Wood Brothers when he raced. He won four in a row out there at Riverside in the 60s. Uh, but that marked him as being a Winston West driver versus a regular Winston Cup Grand National driver. So it has been done in the past. It, who knows? They could come back and do that again. But now... It, yes, it's been done in the uh, in the fifties. I think the times they've done done that as well. Uh, and you know that that's another thing too. And we were going to get into possibly get into this a little bit later in the show. But uh, in the point system for say the fifties and sixties, you would have races on the east coast and west coast, even though they were at the time the points all were in the same pot, if you will. And there's right. some of those races. There were some some cars that had three-digit numbers then, but yes, in the in the early to mid '60s, there were cars that raced with three numbers on the sides and on the tops. And the one that comes to mind was Dan Gurney driving for the Wood Brothers would run number 121, and Parnelli Jones I think ran I don't recall the exact number he ran, but there was a three-digit number for him because he was a Winston West driver. Right, right. So yeah, you know, I mean, like for, for example, like you know with um, well, like here in Chicago, the Chicago Bears, they've gone through a number of uh, numbers they've retired uh, and you know, they will never be used again. And again, they're kind of in the same situation where they have a finite amount of numbers. They can go up to 100 and 910 if you include you know, 0, 0, 0, 1, 0, you know, 3, 0, 9 plus you know, 0 through 99 as well. Uh, and it just, you know, you hear about like the, the Bears, you hear about other NFL teams that you know, have retired a number of numbers, or even you know, NHL, uh, NBA, um, you know, they've all retired numbers, and they start saying eventually, well, you know, we may run out of numbers you know, in 25 or 30 years or what have you. I, I think that NASCAR, by not uh, retiring numbers, it, and like you said, I mean, it, the numbers are owned by NASCAR, the sanctioning body, as opposed to the NASCAR teams themselves. I, I think that they have proven or shown that you don't have to retire a number to remember somebody or remember their great career or things like that. Sure, I mean, you know, would I would I love to see, you know, the number 51 retired here in Chicago because of the, you know, Dick Buckus, you know, I mean, great great middle linebacker. I'd love to sure. say that, but yeah. I also understand why that because of the finite series of numbers that we have, that NASCAR has kind of adopted that system where, you know, we remember the driver 
and oh yeah, by the way, he drove the 43 or the three or what have you. But the most important element is that we are recalling and remembering the driver as opposed to the number being the number one priority. It was always the driver being the number one priority. And I, I like right. it that way. Well, you know, I can, I'd like to share a story and, and this is my only, my only claim to fame in the whole wide world. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I mean, it's just something um, I think worked out well. You know, when Richard Petty retired from driving in 1992, I had written a column for NASCAR scene about, um, I didn't think he should run to number 43 because in 1993, because everybody was just going to associate that driver with the 43 and Richard Petty and whoever got in that car, if he won 25 races, he still was not going to be the best. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I just wrote that. And, and it was like, I told in the column, I said, what I thought Richard should do is run number 44 for one year and then go back to run 43. Well, I was at Pocono that year in 92 and Chuck Spicer, who was the public relations director for Richard Petty called, come over and said, the King wants to see you. And I said, Oh my Lord, what have I done? <laughs> I thought I'm in trouble. What have I done? He said, no, he just wants to talk to you. I said, okay. So we sit on the back of the truck and he said, he never calls calls even today. He never calls me Ben. He says, he said, Hey bud, you know, say, Hey bud, come on, sit down. So we talked and he said, you know what? I read your column and I really liked your idea about going to 44 because they had used 44 in the past. Mm -hmm. 43, 44, 45. So he said, I like your idea about doing 44 for one year and then I'll go back to 43. And we just talked about it. So he read the column. He liked it. And they actually did that with Rick Wilson driving the car in 44, number 44 for the next year. So I thought, hey, you know, that's cool. I've, you know, I've, I've done something great in the world, you know. So <laughs> I was, I just thought it was cool. But at first I thought, you know, the king is mad at me. He's really upset. Sometimes I've written something he didn't like. And no, no, that's not it at all. I really liked your column. I really liked what you had to say. It was a great idea. So it just put, it took the pressure off of the driver getting in the car the next year because no matter who it was, it's almost like, uh, you know, whoever was going to get in the three car after Dale Earnhardt. And sadly, we didn't get to see that come about, which, by the way, would have been Jeff Burton. Uh, That's what was going to be the plan. And, uh, you know, it just took the pressure off. So the point I'm trying to make is that it was so iconic to see the 43 associated with Richard. So it could be possible that down the road uh, they may may retire that number but other drivers have driven the 43 right so wally dollenbeck and a long long list of drivers rick wilson others have driven it you know john andretti so it may not be it may not be but i mean it just never has been something nascar has ever considered and now that we're in an era where we have drivers uh, a 40 or 42 car field now we don't we don't have the 75 car fields we had back in the early 50s like we're starting at the southern 500 like we used to have right it might not be that we have to require having to retire numbers because we got plenty of them yeah exactly so anyway i I just it's interesting you brought that up because it it may or may not be a someday we might retire numbers we we don't it, it may come to pass that nascar decides to but for now we're not well, I know one thing we've never, I, I, I know we do not have currently, and I don't think we ever will have a sports hall of fame of retired numbers. So, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think, I think NASCAR is pretty safe in that regard, but you know, uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit about Kansas uh, Speedway and, but Kansas, the state has mm-hmm. a fairly uh, interesting history. I know we talked last weekend about Jim Roper, how he won at Charlotte. Uh, you know, basically drove his own car, uh, his race car from Kansas, his his homeland in Kansas. Winds up winning at Charlotte, turns around and drives it all the way back home. But you know, we, we <laughs> which have, I think is so cool to do that. It is. Yeah. It, I I would love. I mean, of course, we can't see because I mean today because of you know the car would not be street legal, but still yeah. the the idea is just is just so cool. But you know, we've had a number of drivers who are from the state of Kansas and. You know, they're, they're, as the old saying goes, we're not in Kansas anymore, you know, Toto or whatever it is. But, yeah, yeah. but I mean, let's talk about some of the guys who 
you know, grew up in the state of Kansas. And, I'm, and for the life of me, I'm drawing a total blank. Is it, what is it? It's not America's heartland. That's Wisconsin, I think. But what is, uh, or no, that's America's dairy land. What isn't, isn't Kansas, uh, 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 not logo, but they're saying, isn't it America's heartland, I think? I'm thinking you're right. I, I don't know, to be honest right. with you. But I mean, let's talk about some of the drivers who've come from Kansas and what they've done in their respective careers. Okay, sure will. There's a, I remember there was a gentleman that was racing when I was younger, when I was 12, 13, 14, uh, and his name was Bruce Hill, mm-hmm. and he was from uh, Kansas, uh, to, uh, Topeka, Kansas, Kansas, I believe. He raced, he had 100 starts in the Cup Series, 1974 to 1981, uh, two top fives, 21 top tens. I never had the privilege of meeting Mr. Hill, but I remember he drove a number 47 Chevrolet. Just always there. I mean, very competitive. He did well. Like I say, he had 21 top tens. Uh, his name was Bruce Hill. And then there was another one by the name of Terry Bivens. And he mm-hmm. was from Shoney Mission, Kansas. Uh, and he also had he had one top five and 28 starts, eight top tens. He drove from 1975 to 1977, just a couple of seasons there. But the one guy that we all know, we've mm-hmm. seen him on TV. We've seen him drive a bunch of race cars. Uh, Clint Boyer had 541 starts. He drove from 2005 to 2020, uh, 10 wins in the Cup Series, eight in the Xfinity Series, three in the Truck Series, 82 top fives, 220 top tens. But one of the funny, there's a ton of funny stories about Clint Boyer, but one of the funny stories was, uh, well, we know there are short tracks all around Kansas because he drove probably all of them. And one day he was in his shop, and he was working away on a race car, and the phone rings. And the guy on the other other end says, hey, this is Richard Childress. I want to talk to you about driving my cup car or my Xfinity car then. he says, oh, hell, this ain't Richard Childress. Just leave me alone. I'm working on my car. And hung up on him. (laughs) (laughs) A couple minutes goes by. Phone rings again. Hello, this is Richard Childress. Is this Clint Boyer? Yeah, it's Clint Boyer, but I'm working on my – my race car and I got to get done because I got to race and quit bothering me. I think he called him Mike or Joe or something said, man, I am super busy. Quit messing with me. I got to go. And he hung up on him again. <laughs> and it's like a couple minutes goes by. Fall rings again. I said, listen, this is Richard Childress. I'm in Welcome, North Carolina. My name's not Mike. My name's not Joe. I'm Richard Childress. Don't hang up on me again. <laughs> He said, oh, crap, this really is Richard <laughs> And that's a true story. And they, then they started talking. He said, I want you to drive for me. Stop hanging up on me. And that's how that stall started. But he really did hang up on him twice. And he really thought, you're not, you're just pulling my leg, man. I'm just busy, busy, busy. You know, and Clint's one of these types that he's got an on off switch. And if it's off, it's off and it's on. He's, you know, on the go all the time. So they worked it out for him to come to Welcome, sent the jet, and he got from there the rest of his history. But, I mean, he really did hang up on him a couple of times and thinking he was just a buddy down the street, you know, pulling his legs. Hey, man, this is Richard Childress. Like, yeah, you're, sure it is. I got to go. Bye. And he <laughs> actually hung up on him. Well, you know what that tells me, uh, Ben, is that, number one, Richard Childress, when he wants somebody, he's going to keep after him. But it also yeah. tells me that, you know, that, uh, you know, Clint Boyer was – darn lucky because if Richard would have taken those first two hangups to heart and said, there's not going to be a third call. Yeah. That would have changed history at RCR, which and Clint Boyer may never have made it to NASCAR, you know? No, absolutely. And, and I mean, he out of the clear blue sky, he really wasn't expecting a call, I guess, from Richard, I guess he would have probably had another one. If, if it really wanted him, he would have had somebody else call or, sent some something after him and how he discovered him i don't know how, how he found out about it. and that's you know that's what i'd like to know is how these people out of the clear blue find the clint warriors and find the jeff gordons and find those types you know but i mean i guess they got their scouts out there looking around and trying to get you know read the papers and read up about them but yeah clint was really really good on the short tracks around kansas and Obviously so, because he was discovered by one of the best. But yeah, he was—he was just one of those guys who raced everywhere. And you—and I don't know. I'll, I'm just—I'll be—I'll plead, plead ignorant here, but I don't know the names of a lot of the short tracks in Kansas. But obviously there are. 
And uh, yeah, he was very, very good on the short tracks. And if you look back at his career, that's where he won a bunch of, bunch of those. I mean, he won 10, 10 cup races, but a lot of them were on the short tracks. And, exactly. Uh, well, you know, yeah, and that's, so I, I, I think that one thing about Clint, you know, especially when, when he came to NASCAR and to RCR, he brought about a different um, feeling, a different aura, a mm -hmm. different personality, whatever adjective you want to use, than I think NASCAR was used to. I mean, he was such an easygoing, you know, fun-loving, you know, just a guy that, you know, and I've heard this from so many people. He's the kind of guy you just want to go out and have a beer with. You, know, you just want to hang yeah. around and, and just have him tell stories. I mean, we could get him on the, on our podcast. We could probably have him go for five weeks straight. He'd probably have so many stories, sure. you know, but, but oh, yeah. I mean, he, he was such a different personality, a different bird when he came to NASCAR because he was outspoken, which was kind of at a time when outspokenness was not, was kind of going away because, you know, there was so much emphasis placed on, you know, you've got to have the right uh, personality, the right verbiage, the right look for your sponsors. And Clint, he didn't care. I mean, he just <laughs> was very, very... Um, you know, uh, non-filtered, if you will. And I that's what I, I think that has really helped him, yeah. not only helped him as a driver, but also obviously helped him as a broadcaster as well, too. And, yeah. you know, so, I mean, I, I, I've always kind of had a, um, a kind of a soft spot in my heart for Clint because he would tell you like it is, kind of like a Tony Stewart. I mean, Tony was a little bit more um, brash, and I mean that in a good way, whereas Clint was more of a, you know, a kind of a, funny guy, almost like a, a comedian, and I mean that in a good way, uh, but a lot of similarities between him and Tony Stewart, you know, as far as they didn't let themselves get rankled, they didn't, you know, they didn't care. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget, and I'm sure you're never going to forget, one of the things that uh, will forever stand in the history of NASCAR is Clint Boyer when he got rammed into at Phoenix by Jeff Gordon back in, what was it, 2000 and... Uh, what was it, 14, I think it was, or 13? I think so, yeah, I know where you're going with this. I don't remember right. the year. And, and you right. know, I mean, you know, Clint just got hopped out of his race car, walked down pit road, well, kind of semi, almost semi-jogged, went into the pits, and he was looking for Jeff. He was looking for a fight. You don't see right. that in NASCAR these days, and you haven't seen it for a long time. But, you know, again, an illustration of the kind of guy that he is. And then they, they wound up being, you know, broadcast mates, and they got along great, you know. So, yeah, they did, and a real heat of the moment situation there because i mean that what happened on the track uh happened with a former champion with jeff and then he come jeff comes back and nails him and something i never expected out of jeff to be honest with you but talking about boyer you know he went from i can't remember the sequence i think it was from hard liquor to to breakfast cereal as far as sponsors <laughs> right you know, that, that, yep yeah, and that just kind of sums it up with, with Clint. You know, he can go either way. But he was sort of reminded me of a modern-day Joe Weatherly. My, you know, Weatherly was one of those types that he would just, I mean, he, he was a laugh a minute. He actually drove, now get this, Jerry, I don't know if you knew this or not. Joe Weatherly actually drove a race at Daytona, one of the qualifying races, wearing a Peter Pan suit. It's, it is true. And he was just, you know, he was just, a laugh a minute type of guy. And, and he's sort of like a modern Clint's a modern day Joe, Joe Weatherly. He was one of those he was waiting for a party to break out right. anywhere. And just somebody that sponsors loved and still do. And, uh, you know, I got along really, I still do. I get along really well with Clint. We don't know each other super well, but I mean, we've done s uh, several interviews together. I don't go out and hang with him or nothing, but I mean, we, he knows me from the NASCAR Illustrated days. And uh, I mean, he would know me in a media center. So we're sort of on the same team now as far and with us, he's one of us. Right. And uh, just a fun guy to hang out with. But you never know what you're gonna get. Uh, you, you never know what kind of interview answer you're gonna get with Clint, never. So that's what makes it interesting. And you know, it just dawned on me, you mentioned Joe Weatherly, and I don't know why this other name popped into my head all of a sudden. He's not NASCAR, but Clint Boyer is kind of like NASCAR's version of John Force, maybe not as off the yeah. chain as much as John Force is, but a lot of similarities in in their you know they they speak, spoke with what's on their mind and they were a laugh a minute. I, and and yeah. Weatherly, like you said, was the same way. I mean, it's it's uh, we don't we don't have enough of those guys. I mean, now that Clint's you know retired in the, in the broadcast booth, I mean, we really 
I can't think of anybody, you know, any of the current drivers in the Cup Series or even those in the uh, Xfinity Series that are, you know, along that same lines where they're, you know, kind of a comedian. They're kind of unfiltered. They're, you know, they're willing to say whatever they want to say. I mean, it's just, it's kind of sad not to see guys like a uh, a Joe Weatherly or a Clint Boyer or, you know, for that matter, a, 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 a John Force, uh, that type of personality yeah. in NASCAR these days yeah. because, you, of, you know. Talk about wide open now. John Force is definitely, his personality matches his engines, the yes. engines he drives, right. 300 right. miles an hour. He, right. you know, and, and Clint's one of those types that you, he needs to have a restrictor plate. I know Fox Sports <laughs> has got to have a restrictor plate close, somewhere close by up there in the booth because you just you just got to really watch for him because he's he's just really, he's a great guy. Don't get me wrong. You just got to, somebody's got to be watching his mic though. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Well, let's, you know, we're talking about different drivers. One of the things we like to do on a lifetime in NASCAR is the driver of the week. And by that, we're not talking about current drivers. We're talking about drivers from the past. This week's episode, you chose a very big name, uh, even though he has a little name, if you know what I'm saying. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to reveal it. I'm going to let you, you talk about him, but you really hit it out of the park with this one. Who's our driver of the week and why did you pick him? Well, this week's driver of the week, I had to go with Tiny Lund. And Tiny, if you didn't know, stood about 6'6", six, six, <laughs> which, which I never understood why everybody called him Tiny, I guess, because he wasn't. But, and the one thing he did not have was a tiny heart. Tiny was the biggest, had the biggest heart in the garage area. He was from Iowa, and he came to the NASCAR series uh, in the late late 50s, say 58, 59. But just an incredible guy outside the race car, an incredible uh, driver inside the race car. Uh, just, he could, he could take a 10th place car and win with it, and the reason I chose him, I guess it's just somebody he's had, I've had on my mind for, I don't know, for a while. I'm not real sure why. I guess because we went, you know, to Kansas this week. And mm-hmm. I know Kansas is not Iowa, but we're sort of in the Midwest there. Close enough. Just, yeah, we're close enough. <laughs> we're just kind of somewhere close to it. You know, it's been a bottle, pretty close. But, I mean, it, you know, Tiny was just one of those guys who loved to race, but he loved to fish more than he loved to race. And he, he had a fish camp in South Carolina, and he loved to fish with Buddy Baker. Buddy Baker was one of his best, best friends of all time. And, and, just, and just an incredible person outside the race car. He'd do anything in the world for you. We sadly lost Tiny in 1975 in a race at Talladega Super Speedway. And it was a very early in the race. It was a multi-car crash. And uh, he was hit in the driver's side door by another driver and uh, was killed there in 1975, August of 75. But just, uh, I don't know, just just a great friend, great driver. Everybody in the, in the garage area loved him. And I guess the one thing, the one claim to fame, uh, he well, I won't say one claim because he was a great uh, grand American driver, a great grand American champion. Right. But uh, – he uh, filled in for Marvin Panch when Marvin was burned so badly at Daytona in 1963, driving a sports car and crashed. And uh, Marvin had requested that Tiny get in the car for the Wood Brothers. And then he goes in one of those incredible Cinderella stories where he ends up winning the 63 Daytona 500 in replacement for Marvin Panch. And, but uh, yeah, he was just a, kind of a mid-pack sort of driver in the cup series but after the after the win in 63 but i don't know i I just i never had the honor of meeting tiny because i was probably well i was about 14 or 15 when he passed away Mm -hmm. but um just someone that i've heard a lot of great things about tiny is from other drivers other crew members other people that just spoke very highly of him and just wish I had had the honor to meet him because he just, he seemed like a great, great person. I, I've got to ask you this. What was, I mean, I don't have it right in front of me, but do you know what Tiny's legal first name was? Dwayne. Dwayne. I did not know that. Dwayne Tiny Lund. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I guess, you know, I, I, I guess the tiny moniker comes from just being so big. I remember I went to church with a guy once, uh, and he was a big guy, like tiny, six, 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 seven. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't, I'll be honest with you, I can't recall his name, but everybody called him tiny. And <laughs> he was a super nice guy. And I guess it's just because he was so big, uh, everybody just, everybody just called him tiny. But the thing about tiny, though, he was very competitive in the race car. And if you crossed him up on the racetrack or, or did something on the racetrack he didn't like, he got, he was, had, sort of had a hot temper. And, but he said he got into a skirmish or two with Tiny on the racetrack. And then afterward, Tiny was the kind he'd chase you down and get nose to nose with you. And he said he was, but he said he was a little bit afraid of Tiny after, uh, at a racetrack. He wasn't afraid of him outside the race car, but if something happened on the track, yeah, he was a little bit afraid of him. Cause well, Buddy wasn't a tiny, really a tiny guy himself. So, I mean, you know, he I know, but Tiny was bigger than Buddy. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> true, but. But Buddy was not a small guy either, but, you know, so, but, but, you know, uh, one thing, Ben, and we, we, you know, we're going to move into the final episode of today's show, episode number 35 of A Lifetime in NASCAR. We're going to talk about, you know, some of the, the differences, the distinct differences of racing back in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, even into the 70s, as opposed to today. And I'm not just talking about on the racetrack, I'm talking about off the racetrack. I mean, you know, back in the primarily the '80s and into the '90s, you know, we saw guys start having their own planes. We started, you know, seeing the uh, advent of motor coaches and things like that. How, you know, in your opinion, what was life like back in the day for guys who, you know, kind of like a Jim Roper would drive from Kansas, uh, you know, to to uh, to or to, you know Kansas to uh, Charlotte to race? In his own race car, fix it up, you know, get you do, does the race, wins the money, turns around, goes back home. Didn't have to worry about it, you know, a um, you know a motor coach or anything like that. And how many guys over the years who you know didn't have the money to even pay for a hotel, they'd sleep, you know, inside their race car, or you know, if there were if there was a tow vehicle, they'd sleep in there, and then they take a shower in the morning in the infield, you know, one of the showers and that kind of thing. Well, you know, let's go back to how racing used to be back in the day and tell me about, you know, your thoughts on how it was back then and, and how racing kind of evolved into all the, you know, the, the toys, if you will. I mean, you know, we don't see many drivers today with their own planes. I mean, that was the big rage in the 80s and 90s. And a lot of guys got their, you know, their their pilot's license and, you know, they, they want to, you know, either buying or leasing planes. And now we don't see that at all. But uh, let's let's go back to the back in time and tell me a little bit about some of your thoughts about that. Okay, well, let's take, uh, let's take 1955. I'll just pick one, for instance. Okay, uh, okay so first off, to put it in perspective, today drivers have a motorhome, nice, really nice motorhomes we're talking million dollar motorhomes i guess very expensive ones mm-hmm. in the in the in the infields and you know of course a lot of them have the jets that they fly from race to race back in these days if you could just probably imagine sort of like a gypsy type mentality if you will because and you got to remember back in those days you know the, they didn't have the, the chains of hotels like we do today we didn't have interstates like we do today when you took a trip to say Charlotte to Atlanta or Charlotte to, oh gosh, I don't know, somewhere like that. I mean, it wasn't just a zippity doo dah day down the interstate. You had to go through these podunk little towns, mm-hmm. and you had, it took you forever. I remember my grandparents living in Atlanta. We lived in the welcome area, really close to Richard Childress Racing. Right. Uh, and it seemed to take, it wasn't just a five hour trip. It was more like six or seven, eight hours to get there because I mean, we just didn't have the interstate system like we have now. And so, okay. So imagine not just having a car and, a, and say your parents and a couple of brothers or whatever, let's say that you not only have a car or a truck, but you've got a big old race car tied to the back of it. A lot of these guys didn't have trailers to put them on. So you had a tow bar and you got a car towed to the back of it. So again, no hotels, no no roads that are interstates like we have today. You're towing this big race car behind you and you're going to places like, let's say, all right, we're gonna race at High Point, then West Palm Beach, going on to Jacksonville from there. Then you go to Daytona Beach, Savannah, Columbia, 
Hillsboro. When they would come back up to Wilkesboro, Montgomery, back down to Montgomery, Alabama. <laughs> then we go back up to Langhorne, Pennsylvania. Right. Come back down to Charlotte, Hickory. Then it then go to Phoenix. And to do that, uh, of course, you're going to have to find an airplane that's going to cost you money. Tucson, Arizona, Martinsville, Richmond, you're going to drive there. Raleigh, Winston-Salem, New Oxford, Rochester, New York. You might have a plane if you got, you probably don't have a lot of money unless you're driving for somebody that's got money. <laughs> Bond to New York, Pittsburgh, swing back down to there, go back to Charlotte. You get my point. You're back to, to, to Spartanburg. Okay. So you're doing 48 races, not 36. And I think of a guy named Tim Flock who won the 1955 championship and he's driving for a guy named Carl Kiefer. Carl was of German descent. He had a lot of money because he made money through the Mercury outboard motors for boats, right? So he comes to NASCAR, comes for two years. If you can imagine a guy was the Rick Hendrick of NASCAR in 1955. Mm -hmm. So he has five race cars. He's got five trucks that's got Mercury outboard on the sides. He can, he's pretty much outspent, outdone everybody in the sport. Right. But everybody else is just eating their bag lunches, like you said, right. you know, living out of their race car, have, can't find a hotel room. So you knock on somebody's door and say, hey, I'm Lee Petty. I'm in NASCAR. Can I borrow your spare bedroom? This is really <laughs> the way it was. Right, right, right. And hopefully they're a Lee Petty fan. If they're not, <laughs> then, you know, you might get a fry pan thrown at you. OK, this is really the way it was. OK. So I just, you know, I just got to thinking the other day about what a tough life this is. And at the end of the year, you might possibly put $3,500, or $4,500 in your pocket. Not, not $6 million, $5 million. This is the early days of NASCAR. Welcome to our world, okay? Because you're having to zigzag all over. And I, I wanted to point this one out to you too, Jerry. This is something I found in uh, Greg Feldman's books. Now, this, now, keep in mind, Tim Flock had one of the better rides, and he did win the championship, but still, this had to be hard to do. July 30th, 1955, Tim Flock goes to Syracuse, New York, and he wins a 100-lap race, again, at Syracuse, New York, and then he goes, get, he has to have gotten on an airplane, right, because this is too far away, flies to San Mateo, California, gets in a race for at 252 laps and now he flies all the way across the nation but he does it this next race is on july 31st next the day, first yeah, one is right. july 30th right right all right we're not talking about supersonic 737s when you and i fly from here to say sonoma mm -hmm. we're worn out even if, even with today's uh flights right I don't know what he flew on. <laughs> I hope he flew on something, but that's that's not very much time to go from a, a night race. Let's call it a night race at 7 p.m. And let's call this one, I don't know, 4 p.m. the next afternoon. You see the point? I mean, that's that's 24 hours of going from, you know, just to try to win this championship. I'm just saying that the life of these guys back in those days, running 46 races, zigzagging across the nation. If you win a championship in those days, I'm assuming you get $10,000 mm -hmm. plus winnings. And oh, by the way, I thought an interesting little track fact was Mr. Kikafer would not allow his drivers to sleep with their wives the night before a race because he was afraid they might be, let's put it in a nice way, might be too tired to drive the next day. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay. Right. I mean, this, you know, I don't make this stuff up. This is, this is the way Mr. Kikafer was. He was very uh, strict with his drivers. Mm -hmm. They had to be in the bed by 8 p.m. every night. They had to eat a certain way. You know, he that's everything they did was about winning that championship. He stayed two years, and then he left because he felt like he won everything there was to win. And then he just left. And he, by the way, didn't get along with Bill France Sr. at all, who founded NASCAR. So it was very short-lived. He didn't stick around for very long. 
Yeah, but then he... isn't Carl Kikafer the same Carl Kikafer that went on to affiliate with uh, Roger Penske in IndyCar, if I'm not mistaken? That, I don't know, but he didn't stay... Honestly, he didn't stay. Not, I mean, he was in the, he was in racing two years, and that's it as far as NASCAR goes. He didn't stay very long at all. Yeah, because I mean, I mean, how many Carl Kikafers from Germany are there? I mean, in the U.S. But I mean, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's the same one that went and joined um, um, uh, Roger Penske, and he, I believe, he was his specialty was like engines and that kind of thing. But you know, I mean, you know, the the Tim Flack story. You're right, though. I mean, I mean, look at it this way. He must have flown, I would assume, from Charlotte to uh, Syracuse. Okay, then so he maybe had a little wiggle room there. Maybe he had, you mm -hmm. know, it took it took him a little bit, you know, longer than he would normally need to. But then to fly, essentially, I mean, could he have grabbed an overnight flight? I mean, could he have had maybe a private plane? I don't know. Uh, if he had to go commercial, I mean, you know, back in '55, you know, commercial flights would only go maybe four or five hundred miles. They have to land. They have to refuel. So let's let's say, I mean, let's say he was the doing the uh, the Southwest Airlines of yet back then, where you know you have to go, you know, a few hours here, stop, refuel, go to the next stop, you know, stop, refuel, and that kind of thing. That you're right. I mean, that must have really taken a toll on him physically. But you know, he he did it, and yeah. you know, thankfully he didn't and, have to do it too often. He did it the one time. But you're right, and then, yeah, then and, he has to turn around and flies back from from uh, San Mateo, uh, which is in the Bay Area, all the way back to to the Charlotte area. That that's that's yeah. that's asking a lot. It is, and I, mean, I was just struck by the fact that one race was on July 30th, the next was July 31st. He went across country in 1955, and then as the story ends, a flock ended up eventually leaving. Uh, KK for because the pressure was just too much. I mean, he ended up having stomach ulcers, and it was like win or lose your job at the end of the race kind of thing every week, every week, every week, and it was just too much pressure. And um, ironically, one more little track fact: Bobby Allison actually worked for KK for as a floor sweeper, gopher, early in the game, mm -hmm. and uh, he. Bobby had a 56 Chevrolet and these cars that they drove were uh, Chrysler's and Mr. Kikafer would not let Bobby park his Chevrolet in the driveway of the shop because it was a Chevrolet. So he made him park across the street. <laughs> True story. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, he was very adamant about you have to drive a Chrysler to work. You can't, you have to work 10, I mean, 18 hour days for a dollar and a quarter an hour Work, 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 work. You got to win. Why didn't you? If you finished second, why did why did you finish second? Why didn't you win? One of those types, you know, exactly. very difficult to work for types. Right, right. And, well, and we're gonna, most we're gonna... people who worked for him didn't work for him very long. He was very hard to work for. Wow, wow. So, well, Ben, you know, we we have covered so much ground here. I'm going to give you the next week off to recharge your batteries and come up with more stories for our next episode of A Lifetime in NASCAR, which okay. will drop, obviously, next. Uh, well, I think we we uh, typically drop on Thursday mornings. So, you know, this episode we're taping on Tuesday. And so we'll give you a good week to uh, recharge the batteries, come up with some more great stories. I mean, you are... You are phenomenal when it comes to stories, and I really, really appreciate that. And, well, thank you. Um, Just having fun. Well, you know, and the thing is, as I've found, you know, this is what, my fifth uh, episode, I think, with you. The you know we we typically do about an hour maybe a little bit over an hour and these it just seems like the time just not only flies it's like we could probably do another four or five more hours but I don't yeah. want to burn you out either you know so that kind of thing so but but anyway okay. Ben listen you thanks thanks ever so much again for another great episode of a lifetime in NASCAR and we will talk with you more next week right here on a lifetime in NASCAR.
Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.